Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I used to be a big fan of King of the Hill. Remember that show? Hank Hill would often look at his son Bobby and say, That boy ain't right. You know, I, I know how he feels. You know how when you encounter someone and there's something off about them. They're not malevolent or evil in any kind of way. They're not a danger to themselves or anyone else. They're just different. They look at the world in ways you wouldn't think to, which is kind of cool in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it might be a little, um, well, maybe unnerving is a bit too strong. But at the same time, you're not really sure what's going on in their head or how you should react. This happens a lot with music. You encounter an artist who has a completely unexpected attitude towards the universe, which is, frankly, to be expected. Art can come from a strange, uncharted place in the soul. And since all souls are different, you would expect that some weird will leak out from some of the weirder souls. And because alt-rock has a history of being open to, shall we say, different forms of expression, some of these souls have found homes in the province of rock and roll. And some of those have even had hit records. So, maybe we should look at some of these musical outliers. It's a very tense, complicated world. Maybe this will help loosen us up. And hey, who doesn't like a bent sense of humor from time to time, right? Okay, buckle in, because this is about to get weird. At some point, you will be thinking, That boy ain't right. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. And um, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm, I'm really not sure if I'm serious about this particular episode. Or maybe I am because we're simply going to look at examples of free expression that are a little unconventional. I want to make it clear, though, that I don't want to look at any of these tracks as novelty songs. Weird Al. That's who I consider to be a novelty artist. Chuck Berry singing My Dingling is a novelty song. What we're about to hear aren't comedy records like you would find with Andy Samberg and The Lonely Island. And it's not outsider music like we get from guys like Jan Deck and Florence Foster Jenkins. That's a whole nother topic altogether. These 11 artists that I've chosen to highlight, and it had to be 11 because I wanted an odd prime number, seemed appropriate, are all people who make music that is on a path that's slightly to the left, if you know what I'm saying. Whatever the case, you might find yourself alternately being impressed, provoked into thinking, and then laughing out loud. Let's just say that each response is completely acceptable. Now, we could go back to the 1960s for this sort of alternative thinking. Groups like the Fugs and the Bonzo Dog Band. But since this show is all about the world of alternative rock, we will start off in the 1970s. Even before punk made it acceptable and desirable to try things that were way left of center, there was Devo. They came out of the tire manufacturing city of Akron, Ohio in 1972, two years before the Ramones started playing CBGB in New York, and three years before the Sex Pistols, and about four years before the Clash. Now here we have two sets of brothers, the Mothers Boz and the Casales, plus their friend Alan Myers. Their thing was devolution. The idea that mankind had begun to regress, a very popular notion in the early 1970s, and they evolved out of a satirical art project. Yeah, it was jokey, but this idea that humankind was regressing was very serious. By 1975, they'd attracted the attention of David Bowie, who really appreciated what they were trying to say with their art, 
and he helped Devo get a major label record deal. And then in 1978, the band released a record called Q, Are We Not Men? A, We Are Devo, which is a reference to a line from the H.G. Wells book, The Island of Dr. Moreau. That was written in 1896. Now, in this book, the crazy Dr. Moreau seeks to evolve mankind by surgically mashing up humans and animals. And the result is basically devolution. That debut record was produced by Brian Eno in Germany. And I remember hearing about it and heading to Sam the Record Man to buy a 45 of the first single. I did not know anything about them. I thought that Devo was one of these heavy punk bands with loud guitars and snarling vocals. So when I heard that they had covered the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction, I couldn't wait to get it. A song I thought needed a punk rock version. But when I got it home and put it on the stereo, uh, I became very, very confused very, very quickly. Devo and their cover of the Stones Satisfaction. It's really hard to explain how weird that cover was when it came out. You just didn't do that to a Rolling Stones song. Or did you? Hmm, this is kind of interesting. Uh, tell me more about your concept of devolution. Devo became very popular with a subset of punk and post-punk bands who liked weird, dystopian views of the world. But besides, it was kind of cool how they all wore what looked like radiation suits and flower pots as hats. Devo was soon joined by the B-52s and a few other left-of-center types, all of whom made for great music videos when that became a thing in the early 1980s. Weird equaled telegenic. Bent band number two is Camper Van Beethoven. They're from the San Francisco area and have a history that goes back to at least 1983. This was the earliest days of what was starting to be called alternative music. From the beginning, the band was into what they called surrealist, absurdist folk. They had elements of punk to what they were doing, but they also seemed to like folk music. There was a violinist in their lineup, and every once in a while they'd break into a ska beat. Out front was David Lowry, a mathematician by training who would later work as a financial analyst and a trader of derivatives, something that almost no one really understands. His lyrics veered from being witty to droll to smart-assy to completely nonsensical. The best example of all this is still their 1985 debut album, Telephone Free Landslide, which, of course, doesn't seem to make any sense. Let me, let me give you some song titles from this album. Mao reminisces about his days in southern China the day that Lassie went to the moon, and Balalaika Gap. This song became a cult classic. It makes no sense at all because it's not supposed to. It's Camper Van Beethoven and Take the Skinheads Bowling. Take the Skinheads Bowling, take them bowling. Take the From 1985, Camper Van Beethoven and Take the Skinheads Bowling. Camper still exists today, as does their spin-off group Cracker. They had some big alt-rock hits in the 90s. And singer David Lowry works as a lecturer in the music business program at the University of Georgia. Plus, he has a website where he writes on music called The Tricordist. It's actually very, very good. Moving on to bent band number three, it's The Dead Milkman. Now, some people will classify them as a comedy act, but I think that's wrong. I'd put them in the satirical camp. 
They were formed in Philadelphia around the same time as Camper Van Beethoven was starting up in California, 1983. The Dead Milkmen were far more punk-leaning. They were part of the local hardcore scene, but differentiated themselves by showing a sense of humor. American hardcore could be extremely serious and dour, so it was refreshing to lighten up with the Milkmen every once in a while. Like Camper, they evolved as a strictly do-it-yourself project and as an indie act. They started by self-releasing a bunch of cassettes before they released a debut album entitled Big Lizard in My Backyard, and more albums followed. MTV jumped on some of their videos. Campus radio stations loved their stuff, and even a few commercial alternative radio stations that existed back then gave the Dead Milkmen some love. Their biggest hits included songs like Bitchin' Camaro, The Thing That Only Eats Hippies, Punk Rock Girl, and this song, which took a very dim view of all the poser kids who said that they were into the techno-pop of the day. Oh, baby, look at you. Don't you look like Susie Sue? How long does it take to get that way? What a terrible waste of energy. You wear black clothes, say you're poetic. The sad truth is you're just pathetic. Get into the groups, get out of my way. I came here to drink, not to get laid. So why don't you just go on home? The proper name of that song is Instant Club Hit, You'll Dance to Anything, from the 1987 Dead Milkman record, Bucky Fellini. The group lasted until 1995, reformed briefly in 2004, and have been back together since 2008. And let me tell you something, if you want some laugh-out-loud satire with your punk rock, investigate the Dead Milkman's discography. You will not be disappointed. We're up to Bent Band number four. They're the surf punks. If you were growing up in Southern California in the 80s and were into punk, there was no way you could have avoided these guys. Everybody in The Offspring, for example, was a fan, as were most of the punk and ska punk bands that came out of Orange County in the 1990s. The surf punks were formed by Dennis Dragon, a guy from a very musical family. His father was a symphony conductor, but if that wasn't weird enough, his brother is Daryl Dragon, the captain in The Captain and Tennille. Dennis's buddies were all surfers and frisbee dudes. They were all about hanging out, smoking up, and not taking life too seriously. They were sort of like the Beach Boys, if they had been members of your frat house, but punk, you know? They had songs like Shark Attack, No Fat Chicks, Spoiled Brats from Malibu, and Ride the Wild Surf. They were never really that popular outside of their home state, but like I said, they had a huge influence on the California punk revival that began in the late 1980s. And because surf music was also undergoing a resurrection at the time, the band found themselves in the right place at the right time. Things looked like they were going to break wide open for the band when the surf punks landed a major label record deal. But Dennis blew off the chance to play a big show to go surfing instead, and so much for that. Let me play you something. This is from a 1982 album entitled Locals Only. It's aggressive, yet non-threatening. Sort of. The surf punks did a lot of covers, including this version of the 1962 Brian Hyland hit, Sealed with a Kiss. I know it's going to start off weird, but I need you to stick with me through the whole song. You'll see why I chose it. The Surf Punks, with their version of Sealed with a Kiss. Told you it would get weird. Seven more bent bands to go, and when we come back, it's the psychobilly of Mojo Nixon. I call this show Bent Bands because we're looking at artists who seem slightly out of alignment when it comes to the rest of the universe. Not that there's anything wrong with this. They're different. They know it. We know it. And we're all okay with it. 
I met Mojo Nixon a number of times, and each occasion was always unusual. He came out of Virginia and found solace in a genre that became known as Psychobilly. This is a mix of punk, old-school rock and roll from the 50s and early 60s, rockabilly, an early form of rock and roll, and rhythm and blues. Although Psychobilly has pockets of fans everywhere, including, oddly enough, Eastern Europe, its home is in the U.S. South. Mojo took Psychobilly in a more fun and spontaneous direction, adding an offbeat sense of humor. There were songs like Jesus at McDonald's and Debbie Gibson is Pregnant with My Two-Headed Love Child and also Bring Me the Head of David Geffen, which caused him some problems within the record industry. One of my favorites was Orenthal James Was a Mighty Bad Man, which of course is all about O.J. Simpson. Mojo also became an actor, appearing in a bunch of Hollywood films, and he worked with Sylvia Massey, a producer who would later work with this band called Tool. But when I first met Mojo, it was the late 1980s, and he was working with a partner named Skid Roper. Skid didn't say much. He kind of stayed in the background and played whatever instruments he felt was appropriate, like maybe a washboard or a weird percussion thing made from a mop handle and a laundry tub. Their biggest hit together came in 1987 with a record called Bodacious, this became a big song with the Beavis and Butthead crowd. Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper with Elvis is Everywhere from 1987. That was a reasonable alt-rock hit back then. It was all over MTV and much music. Moving on to bent band number six, we have Dread Zeppelin. Now, I know, I know, some people will claim that these guys were nothing more than a novelty band, but having met them and interviewed them, I'm really not so sure. They were pretty serious about what they were doing, which was playing reggae covers of Led Zeppelin songs. That's it. That, that was their thing. Dread Zeppelin came together in Pasadena, California, evolving out of a group called the Prime Movers. Stuart Adamson, a big country, remember them? He was a big fan of these guys. When that group imploded, they started up again, this time with an Elvis impersonator who went by the name Tort Elvis out front. His real name was Greg Tortelli, and at the time he joined the band, he was pushing 300 pounds. Their whole set was Led Zeppelin songs done in a reggae style. And their first gig? January 8th, 1989, on what would have been the real Elvis's 54th birthday. And yes, everybody will admit that this started as a joke, but Dread Zeppelin eventually expanded their repertoire to include the Yardbirds, another Jimmy Page band, and Bob Marley, which made sense, I guess. The more they played, the more people took them seriously. Not too seriously, though. Everybody understood that it was about having fun. But this fun turned into a business, a real business. And by the end of 1990, they'd recorded a bunch of stuff with Dave Stewart, the guy from the Eurythmics. They were then signed to IRS Records, R.E.M.'s old label, and they also started recording original material. Now, the group is still together today. They're still playing gigs more than 25 years later. So if that is a joke, it's a darn good one. Dread Zeppelin from their 1990 debut album, Unled Ed. That's about as close as we're going to get to a novelty group for this list of bent bands. You can fight with me, but I like them, so they, they stay on the list. I don't expect any arguments about band number seven. They might be giants. 
I think the word I'd use for these guys is charmingly eccentric and quirky. John Flansburg and John Linnell. They formed this group in Massachusetts in 1982. In the early years, John would sing and play guitar, while the other John would provide backup on accordion and saxophone. Sometimes they'd use a drum machine or play along to backing tracks pre-recorded onto a cassette. Beginning in 1986, they drifted in and out of consciousness of alt-rock types. Fans loved the weird references in their lyrics. Their biggest hit from this period came in 1990. Just before grunge hit, they released an album entitled Flood on Electra Records. And against all expectations, the album had a couple of alt-rock hits. And this album itself sold over a million copies on the strength of songs like this. Particle Man, Particle Man, doing the things a particle can. What's he like? It's not important. Particle Man, is he a dot or is he a speck? When he's underwater, does he get wet? Or does the water get him instead? Nobody knows. They might be giants with Particle Man from 1990. Big alternative song that year. Although they weren't thinking of it at the time, this song is an early indication that They Might Be Giants might be good at writing children's songs. In fact, Particle Man was picked up by elementary school teachers everywhere and taught to kids. By the 2000s, the group was actually releasing albums with titles like Here Come the ABCs and Here Come the One Two Threes and Here Comes Science, which contained songs like Meet the Elements and My Brother the Ape. They've also written for soundtracks, worked with magazines and journals, and maintained an on-again, off-again service called Dial-A-Song, which is just like it sounds. They gave out a number, which you could call, an answering machine picked up, and then you would hear a new original song. Cool, huh? Like I said, they might be giants are quirky. This is an episode highlighting a few of the more, I want to be polite about this, a curious, idiosyncratic, offbeat, whimsical, peculiar, flaky, kooky, nutty, and mildly freakish bands that we've encountered since the birth of alt-rock back in the 1970s. We are not judging, I want to make that clear, we are merely marveling at their particular strands of uh, creativity. Band number eight on this list features some incredible musicians, but the group has always lived in the land of the bizarre, the strange, and the irreverent. Primus experiments with a mix of alternative metal and funk metal, all built around singer and bass player Les Claypool's grooves. If you want to compare Les to anyone, do it with uh, Getty Lee of Rush, crossed with Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Great player, very inventive, never afraid to push boundaries. You'll have heard Primus if you've ever seen an episode of South Park. That's them doing the opening and closing themes. Primus has had a couple of platinum albums, one gold album, and have been nominated for Grammys at least twice. In 2014, they released an album called Primus and the Chocolate Factory, which was a cover of all the songs in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory done in order. They once released a single called Winona's Big Brown Beaver, which is not about actress Winona Ryder, but she and her boyfriend at the time, Dave Perner of Soul Asylum, were not very impressed with this, and there was something of a feud for a while. Today, though, there's a beer called Winona's Big Brown Ale from a brewery called Voodoo. My favorite Primus song is from their second album, 1991's Sailing the Seas of Cheese. It's called Tommy the Cat, and it guest stars Tom Waits as Tommy.
Primus, with help from Tom Waits and Tommy the Cat from 1991. By the way, if you ever go to a Primus show, it is very good etiquette to yell, Primus sucks! at the band. That's what you're supposed to do, and they're very grateful when you do it. Band number nine definitely lives in a weird place. Bloodhound Gang began as a hip-hop group influenced by the attitude of the Beastie Boys, but the longer they stuck around, the more they morphed into an odd sort of alt-rock band specializing in satire built around sophomore college-type humor. They're from King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, which is in the Philadelphia area, and from the very beginning, they had absolutely no trouble offending people. In fact, their philosophy was, let's hurt everyone's feelings to make us feel better about ourselves. Gee, you'd never know with song titles like Kiss Me Where It Smells Funny and A Lap Dance Is So Much Better When The Stripper Is Crying. Swear to God, that's an actual song title. Their biggest album was a 2000 release called Hooray for Boobies, which went platinum or gold in no fewer than nine countries. And what did it? Well, songs like this. Count the double entendres. You want it rough, you're out of bounds. I want you smothered, want you covered like my waffle house. Hash browns come and cook at the FedEx, never reach an apex. Just like Google Cola stock, you are inclined to make me rise an hour early. Just like daylight savings time. Do it now. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. The Bloodhound Gang, from their million-seller Hooray for Boobies back in 2000. That's the bad touch. Group number 10 on this list of bent band is King Missile. They're led by poet John S. Hall, who came out of the poetry scene of Greenwich Village in New York. But reading poems got boring, so John formed a band. Record labels started to take notice, and in 1983, they had a hit with their fifth album, Happy Hour. Now, it's one particular song from this album that made it a hit. Is this a weird story or a metaphor for the emasculated male in the late 20th century? You decide. I was starting to get very depressed, so I went to the Kiev and ate breakfast. Then as I walked down Second Avenue towards St. Mark's Place, where all those people sell used books and other junk on the street, I saw my penis lying on a blanket next to a broken toaster oven. That was a major label single for King Missile in 1993. Seriously. And it did very well at radio. But it also screwed the band for the rest of their career because most of the other material wasn't anything like that. Finally, we have Ween. This is another group from Pennsylvania. I have no idea what it is about that state. Uh, And they are eclectic, to say the least. They had a twisted sense of humor that leaned very heavily into the land of the absurd and the surreal. Again, don't use the word novelty here. This is much more brainy than that, if that's the word to use. They played with rock and pop. They recorded a country album. In 1999, they became one of the very first bands to release an MP3-only album. And most of their studio albums were on major labels, too. I'm going to play something which may cause your brain to rot. That's how infectious this song is. At one point, uh, I worked at a radio station with a general manager who threatened to fire anybody who played this song on the air. He's gone, so we can probably do it now. Believe it or not, this was a top 10 hit in Australia. It's Dean and Gene Ween with Push the Little Daisies. Sometimes I know 
from a 1992 album called Pure Guava. That's Ween with Push the Little Daisies. Sorry if that's going to be stuck in your head for the next six weeks. So there you have 11 bent bands from the alternative era. Devo, Camper Van Beethoven, Dead Milkman, Surf Punks, Mojo Nixon, Dread Zeppelin, They Might Be Giants, Primus, King Missile, and Ween. If anything over the last hour appealed to you, I highly encourage you to go down these weird roads to see what you can find. And there are plenty more worthy of this list. The Residents, Presidents of the United States of America, Man or Astro Man. We might include Cake on this list. Early material from Beck would certainly fit. And if you look closely at Faith No More, you can actually make a case for them. If you go to my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, and look up the post for Ongoing History Show number 731, you'll find a full playlist from this episode that you can listen to whenever you like. I'll add a bunch more songs, too, so if you're feeling demented, uh, you have someplace to go and something to listen to. And while you're at the website, make sure you sign up for the free newsletter. You'll get all kinds of interesting and cool music news in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every weekday. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, or Google+, you can look for me because I am, too. And if you'd like to connect over old-fashioned email, we can do that as well. Reach me at alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 